Let's pray, church, and then I'm going to open up to, to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. We thank you that you're here in this place, and we just continue to ask for more of you. We want more of the presence of God. Just thinking about David and how he was a man after your own heart because he loved the presence of the Lord. And we want to be a people who just love the presence of the Lord, who crave the presence of the Lord. So we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move this morning? I pray that you would put power on my words and, and that you would help me to teach this word correctly, Father. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you want to share. Would you encourage those this morning who really need encouragement? And if there are any who are here, most certainly there are, who do not know you, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would receive you. That today would be the day that they would move from darkness to light, that they would understand, Father, that they are unable to achieve their own salvation, that it is only through your blood, Jesus, that all of us are saved. I pray that that truth, that that reality would hit home in hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have to confess that I love worship music of all kinds. I really do. I mean, I love acoustic worship. I love big anthemic worship with electric guitars and synth. And I love gospel music. I love to listen to some good gospel music. And I even love old hymns. I mean, who doesn't love a good old hymn? And today we're going to be looking at one of the most famous hymns of all time. It actually occurs in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. In the middle of his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul inserts into his letter what scholars tell us is an early Christian hymn. And it's, again, this hymn that I want us to look at today. And so if you have your Bible, why don't you head there with me now. 1 Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is what we read. I love this passage. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me just stop there. This whole, this whole hymn, this whole passage, it's all about Jesus, okay? Spoiler alert. It's all about Jesus. And I just, I want you to look at the descriptions of Jesus in this, in this small hymn. It, it is remarkable. I don't know if there's a, another place in all of the Bible that speaks of Jesus in loftier terms, in more exalting terms, than here in, in Colossians 1.15. So, so just look at, at the way in which Paul describes Jesus with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness of God. You want a verse you can point to that says Jesus is God? How about 
Colossians 1.19 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. And this little hymn gives us four references to Jesus that if, if properly understood and applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, have the power to change us. They really do. And so let's look at how these four references to Jesus change his followers. Well, to begin, Jesus changes the way that we see the Father. Changes the way that we see the Father. Let's look at verse 15 again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, what's Paul saying when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God? He's saying that Jesus gives us the perfect picture of what God the Father is like. He is the image of the invisible God. If we want the clearest insight into the Father's heart and desires and motivations, then we need to look no further than the heart and the desires and the motivations of Jesus. But, you know, for many of us, if we're honest, I think we struggle with this idea that if we've, if we've seen Jesus, that we've seen the Father. You know, in my Bible reading plan this week, I was in both Exodus and the Old Testament and the Gospel of Luke in the New. And it was striking for me this week to read Exodus 19, in which the Lord descends on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and tells the Israelites that if they but approach the mountain, that they will be struck down and killed by the Lord. And then to flip back over to Luke and to read about Jesus in Luke 23 being spat upon and mocked, but refusing to retaliate. It is easy in such moments to assume that God the Father is stern and demanding while Jesus is meek and mild. He's the good shepherd. But without even being aware of it, we can begin to view Jesus as our friend, as the Savior, the one who is approachable, while believing that God the Father is distant or, or even cold. But verse 15, it wakes us up from this line. It says, no, no, no. If you have seen the heart of Jesus, you have seen the heart of the Father. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Jesus says, show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And this means, church, that when we see Jesus calling the little children to himself, we're seeing the heart of the Father who has a special heart for the vulnerable. When we see Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house, the man who is universally hated by everyone in his town, he was ostracized, he was avoided, he was a tax collector. When we see Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house, we're seeing the heart of the Father who too loves an outcast. And so if you're here this morning, you feel like an outcast, then there is some good news for you. Your Father in heaven loves the outcast. When we see Jesus at, at parties so that he's accused of being a drunk and a glutton, we're seeing the heart of the Father. Who too loves a good celebration? The Father loves a good celebration. He has so ordained it that for all eternity, we're, we're going to be having one big, long celebration. That is a God who likes to celebrate. And when we see Jesus weep at Lazarus' tomb, 
We're seeing the heart of the Father who too is concerned with our pain. Do you know that? That no matter how small, how insignificant, whatever you got going on in your life right now, it matters to the Father. You might feel at times like it doesn't matter to your spouse, who kind of checks out, or it doesn't matter to your boss, or it doesn't matter to your kids. Do you know that it matters to your Father? Do you know that every single thing in your life even the little mole holes that you're tripping over, even the little inconveniences, it matters to the Father. doesn't always mean that he's going to remove it right away because he's a good Father. But you, you need to know, you need to be assured that, that your pain, your suffering, your struggles, your anxiety, it matters to him. You know, in a, in a year like 2020, all of us have a running list a mile high of what our needs are, don't we? Some of us might say, you know, what I most need right now, if I had to think of anything, if what I most right need, what I most need right now, rather, is just to have my hours return to normal. Because I, I, I've just been working part-time hours. I just need to get my hours back to where they were so I can just feel like I've got a decent paycheck again. For others of us, we might say, you know, what I most need right now is just to stop working from home because I'm trying to work from home and wrangle a three-year-old at the same time, and frankly, it's just killing me. And so that's where some of you are at. What, what, what do you most need? You, just, you would say, I need to stop working from home. What I most need, you might say, is just to get out of the house because I'm immunocompromised. And so I, I just miss seeing my, my family. I miss seeing my friends. I, I hate that my, my day, that my routine is the same every single day. I just want to get out of the house. Some of you on Facebook right now, that might be what you're saying. I just want to get out of this jail cell. What I most need, others of us might say, is just some good news on the news for once. Because the vitriol spewed in our political sphere, it's just draining my hope. That's what some of us might say. And friend, without in any way discounting your real needs, because these are all legitimate needs, I would suggest that the greatest need in your life right now, the greatest need in my life, is for us to understand how deeply we are loved by the Father. That's your greatest need. To know that he is more engaged, more eager to bless, more quick to forgive, more full of love and affection than any earthly father that has ever lived. I mean, you can conceptualize in your head the, the perfect earthly father, or you can think about the, the best dad that you've ever known. You can think about their generosity and their humility and their desire to serve and their, their willingness to bless their kids, to encourage their kids, that their children were their delight, their children were their joy. And I'm here to tell you that the best earthly father doesn't hold a candle to your heavenly father. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Let us never attempt to hold earthly dads to higher standards than our Heavenly Father. He is a perfect creator. He is a perfect provider. And he is a perfect father. He can do no, nothing else but be perfect. And so this is and will always be our greatest need to know how, how loved we are by our Father. A.W. Tozer said this, and and just to be honest, every time I read this quote, it blows my mind. I, I've, I don't know how many times I've read this quote. It just blows my mind. This is what he said. He said, did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven 
as you are to be there. Did, did you ever stop to think that your God is so good, is so loving, is so kind, so delights in you, that he is going to be as pleased to see you as you are pleased to see him? Just every time. Friends, the, the, the reason why we struggle to, to get up out of bed and get, get in the word in the morning, the reason why we prefer our snooze button over our, our time with with the Father, the reason why it's just easier for us to listen to talk radio in the car than it is to talk with our Father, it's not because we lack discipline. I mean, that's part of it. But the reality is, the reason why many of us struggle to connect with our Father is because it, at root, at core, in our hearts, we do not understand, we do not believe how good He truly is. An engaged couple, they, they don't need, they don't need discipline to go on a date together. And a doting grandma, she, she doesn't need discipline to hang out with her grandbabies. When you love someone and when you understand how much they love you, you just can't help it. The, the greatest need in, in our life, if we want to spend more time with the Father, it, it is not discipline. It's to understand at bottom, at root, that we are so incredibly loved by our Father. It's our greatest need. And Jesus absolutely changes the way that we see the Father. To see his heart, to see his meekness, to see his desire to bless is to see our Father's heart as well. Secondly, Jesus changes the way that we see the world. Let's look at verse 16 again. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, as good evangelicals, we're, we're really good with the first part of this verse. Whether we believe in a, a literal six-day creation, which is some of us, or, or believe that God created the world billions of years ago and saw that long process through, which is others of us, it is not hard to affirm that all things have been created through Jesus. We would absolutely affirm that statement. But then there's that little bit of at the end. Did you catch that? All things have been created through him and for him. That, that is to say that everything has been created for his glory and honor. It's all about him. Now, I, I want to use an illustration that I, I shared just a month or two ago on one of my devotionals. But I, I want to use it again, even though it's going to be familiar to some of you, because frankly, it's just a message that all of us need to hear regularly. Certainly, I need to hear regularly, all right? I, imagine with me that I was invited to a friend's birthday party at a bowling alley. Imagine that after arriving and saying hello to the birthday boy, saying hello to the host, I, I pulled him aside and, and I said, hey, I, I don't mean to be that guy, but you know, thankful you invited me to your bowling party, but I'm not really much of a bowler. And so I, I saw a putt-putt place on my way in down the street. Do you think we could move the party to the putt-putt place? Is that, I, I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but is, is that okay? Can I maybe make an announcement? And then imagine just a, a little bit later, maybe there was some country music playing at the bowling alley, and I approached my friend, the birthday guy, and I, I said, listen, hey, 
I know that you love country music, and I'm sure that you probably asked the, one of the workers to play a country station, but I'm just not really in the country. Do you think we could turn the station? Do you think we could change it to something else? And then, and then imagine just a little bit later on, food is brought out, and wings are everywhere. There's tables full of wings, and I approached the host, and I said, look, I, I know you love wings. And, and, you know, I know this is your party, but I'm a burger guy. And so is there, is there any way that we could take some of these wings and just take them back? Is there any way we could get a good burger out here? Because I, I just much prefer Bing. I mean, a, a burger over a wing. These aren't even boneless wings. I mean, what are we doing here? You, you know, eventually, I, I think my friend would pull me aside. And what would he say to me? He would, say, he would look me in the eye and say, Christian, Christian, it's not your party. It's not your party. It's my party. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says to each one of us, this world, all of creation, it ain't your party. All things have been created for him, for Jesus. And so listen, your marriage does not exist for you, simply for your benefit. Your marriage exists that God might be glorified through your sacrificial love for your spouse. Your career does not exist for you, simply for your needs. Your career is for him, that Jesus might be glorified as you treat your coworkers with kindness and as you provide a meaningful service with integrity. Your bank account does not exist for you, that you might spend it however you wish. The way that we talk about our money and our finances sometimes, it's like, do I want to do this and do I want to do this? It's not yours. Perhaps you might want to consult the owner of your bank account. Your body, your talents, your gifts, your resources, they do not exist for you. For all of creation is for Jesus. It's his party. And, and, and you know, I, I just, I need this message all of the time. I, I, I just need continually, I don't, but I, I should be disciplined enough throughout the week to just continually say to myself, Christian, this isn't your party. Christian, this isn't your party. Christian, this isn't your party. And the irony of all ironies is that it is those who understand this truth the most that all of creation is for Jesus. It is those who find the most joy in this life. Have you figured this one out yet? Can you believe that? Because if you come to your marriage each day saying, what's in it for me, you will be perpetually dissatisfied in your marriage. Because you're married to a sinner. And that's the reality. And if you show up at work each day saying, what's in it for me, you will grow to hate your place of employment. You just will. You will grow so cynical, so jaded, so frustrated until you leave that job for another job and grow to hate that one. And if you come to church each week saying, what's in it for me, you will enjoy church of all people the least. You will always find something to complain about around here. I guarantee you. But it is those who say, Jesus, help me to glorify you in this marriage. Help me to glorify you as a single person. Help me to glorify you at my place of employment as an employee. Help me to glorify you as a student. Help me to glorify you as a member of the Grove City Vineyard. It is those folks who live with the most contentment and the most gratitude. Jesus changes 
the way that we see the world. He changes the way that we see creation. It is not your party. Changes the way that we see the world, and he changes the way that we see the church. Let's look at the first part of verse 18 here together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Paul tells us that the church is the body of Christ and that he is our head. So how how does this metaphor affect our understanding of the church? Well, number one, this metaphor shows us that we can do nothing without Christ. It is possible, as you know, for a doctor to amputate a foot or a hand. And while it's tragic when this occurs, someone can still live a meaningful life, can't they, without a foot, without a hand? But it's impossible to amputate someone's head if they're going to remain alive. When a body loses connection to a head, it's just game over, isn't it? It's game over. And of course, the same is true for the church. You know, when we lose connection to Jesus, when we as a church community fail to seek his will and follow his lead so that we become disconnected from our head, the church always loses its power and is no longer alive. And so listen, the chief job of the elders of this church and the pastors and the leaders under them, is to discern the will of Jesus and to try to stay connected to our head at all costs. That's their job. We want to remain connected to you. We want to go where you're telling us to go. We want to remain in lockstep, Jesus, with you. And during a pandemic, it is absolutely vital that our leadership, from the elders on down, seek the will of the Lord and then act accordingly. And because the elders of this church view their submission to Christ's authority as their ultimate priority, they will make hard decisions that they know might not prove popular to everyone if it means following Jesus' direction and guidance. Do you know that? And friend, I assure you, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is far more beneficial to attend a church in which the elders care more about being obedient to the directions of Jesus than they care about appeasing the, uh, the preferences of every single member. You, you do not want to be a part of a church in which the leadership prioritizes the opinions of their members over the guidance of the Lord. Where, where they say, I would, rather, I would rather be popular with everyone. I would rather try to appease everyone than remain connected to the head. And, and I say all this, Because undoubtedly, whatever whatever the future holds for us in the next several months, decisions will be made that will seem too aggressive to some or too mild for others. There will be some who perhaps advocate for, for more safety protocols, and there will be some who are just desperate to get rid of these masks. And you know, when you're frustrated by decisions that are made, please do not take for granted that the elders are fervently praying about these issues and seeking the Lord's guidance. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way, listen to me, that that our elders are infallible and that they hear perfectly from the Lord as individuals at every single turn. I'm not suggesting that at all. Nor am I suggesting that it isn't healthy or appropriate at times to express our concerns with the elders. If you talk to Pastor Tom or you talk to Tom or or tool or down, you will find that they're very open to dialogue, that they're not going to get defensive with you, that they're 
They're willing to meet you where you're at. But what I am saying, church, is this. Let us be thankful to be a part of a community whose elders would rather obey Jesus than accommodate every opinion in the church. And let us pray for our elders and let us encourage them and let us pray that as a church that we might never be separated from our head who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Secondly, Jesus changes the way that we see the church because if he is our head and we are his body, then we have connected ourselves to the most missionally minded man who ever walked the face of the earth. Nothing that Jesus did was ever for himself. Everything was centered around the mission that God had given him. At virtually every turn throughout the Gospels, Jesus was on mission. Healing the sick, feeding the poor, teaching the masses. And the only time we don't find him on mission was when he was stealing away to be with his father so that he might pray about his mission. A great need in the church today is to remember who we've attached ourselves to. If we have signed ourselves up to be connected to Jesus, then we've signed ourselves up, church, to be on mission. And to the extent that we fail to join Jesus on mission, we prevent the body from operating at full capacity. I've dislocated my knee four or five times in my life, and I've had multiple knee surgeries, and so I'm quite familiar with crutches at this point in my life. And if you've ever spent a good deal of time on crutches, you know that if even one small part of your body is impaired, isn't working, just, just a little kneecap, then it becomes extremely hard to do just about anything. My freshman year at OSU, I dislocated my knee. It's one of those four or five occasions. And so I spent the entire winter quarter getting to, getting to class via crutches. And it was already a 15 or 20 minute walk without the crutches. And so I was the only person sweating in the middle of winter on my way to class. Because if just one small part of the body isn't working, everything becomes hard. And the tragic reality of today's church is, is that often our head, Jesus, is straining ahead. He's straining ahead in pursuit of mission, in pursuit of serving the poor or sharing the gospel or showing kindness to others. And yet his desires are hindered by a body that's just not operating at full capacity. His desired are hindered by feet that just don't want to, to move towards others and by hands that don't want to stretch out toward others in service. Oh, what good might be done in this world if the body of Christ would just cooperate with our head? And so listen, if you're watching from home right now, some of you might say that, you know, you sort of like remaining in your pajamas and switching on the computer at 9 a.m. for for church. You, you might say, you know, this home, this home church thing, it's not a bad kick. I kind of like sleeping in. I kind of like not putting on makeup. I kind of like just telling the kids to go in another room. And others of us might say, you know, as an introvert, I, I really appreciate the fact that, that we're told to exit the sanctuary silently. I could get used to coming to church without actually having to interact with another human being, without needing to engage in conversation with anyone. Others of us might say, you know, it's been kind of nice having seven free nights each week. 
It's been nice to slow down and not invite our neighbors over and not have any planned activities throughout the week, to not have to, to spend any of our days off serving or, or engaging in the work of the Lord. But friends, we cannot forget as Christ's body. We have connected ourselves to Jesus, our head, who is a mission-focused king. So whether you find yourself at home this morning or out of the parking lot or here in the sanctuary, I just want to remind you that our current experience of church is our best attempt to come together as a community during a pandemic. This is not church as it was meant to be. And so I urge you, wherever you're at, you're in the parking lot, you're at home, you're here, do not get comfortable. Do not get comfortable. Do not forget that the Lord did not fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you might be a spectator. And perhaps even now, the Lord is nudging you to side up and to serve in our, our kids' hallway with Miss Heather. So what if you've never served before? Perhaps the Holy Spirit has just been speaking to you about that over the last week or so. Why not talk to Miss Heather after the service? Why not sign up to serve with our kids? You can email her as well, heather at gcvineyard.org. Or maybe some of you would say, you know what, I'm pretty homebound right now, but I could pray on Tuesday nights. That's, that's a way that I could contribute, a way that I could serve my brothers and sisters. And Every Tuesday night, there's a group of us that gathers on Zoom to pray from 7 to 8 for you, for this church. You shoot me an email, christian at gcvineyard.org. Every Tuesday, I'll, I'll email you the little link that you can click on and join our Zoom prayer meeting. We would love to see more of you there. You know, or perhaps you, you might consider giving regularly to the small food pantry that we have here at the church. On the second Sunday of every month, we collect items for distribution in our community. And, and behind me, you're going to see a list of our most needed items on the screen. That's something that you can do. That's a way that you can be engaged and serving. And, and you know, if you feel like, Christian, I, I just don't know where to start. Or you have some complications in your life that make it harder to serve. Why not begin by just praying this simple prayer? You can pray this, this really simple prayer. I promise, even you can pray this. You can say, Jesus, I want to be used by you. I can't do everything, but I can do something. I am available, Jesus. Please use me. It's a simple prayer that you can pray every day when you wake up. Say, Jesus, I want to be used by you. I can't do everything, but I can do something. I am available, Jesus. Please use me. It's a prayer that you can pray every day. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that is a prayer that the Father loves to answer. I would love to hear stories coming from all, all different parts of our church of people who've prayed a simple prayer like that and then seen God move in their midst. Friends, Jesus changes the way that we see church. And lastly, quickly, Jesus changes the way that we see death. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. These verses share with us that 
Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, the first among many to receive a resurrected body. This is good news. And Jesus is the first among many because he who is fully God shed his blood on the cross that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus changes the way that his followers see death because we believe that we too, like Jesus, will receive this resurrected body and we will live with him for all eternity. And this is extremely, extremely important news for us because all of us in this room, newsflash, are going to die. It doesn't matter how many kale smoothies you drink. It doesn't matter how many laps you do at the gym. All of us, 100% of us, are going to die. It just happens. As, as it's famously said, you know, wars and plagues, they never increase the death count. They just speed it up a little bit because all of us are going to die. But because Christians know that we too will be raised to new life, raised to resurrected bodies, our relationship with death is just completely different than, than the rest of the world. So while the rest of the world goes to great lengths to avoid thinking about death, Christians actually dwell and meditate on our eventual deaths. We, we dwell, we meditate, we continually remind ourselves of our eventual death and resurrection because it is only it is only our eventual death and resurrection which makes sense of the, the sacrificial lives that we as Christians are called to live. Friend, listen, why, why does it make sense for a man or a woman to endure grueling hours of study and to accrue a large amount of death just to attend law school? Because at the end of that journey, they get to call themselves an attorney. And why does it make sense for a woman woman to willingly subject herself to, my, to nine months of pain and discomfort, which culminates in, in a really painful, so I hear, birth. It's because at the end of that journey, she's going to get to hold that little baby. She's going to get to call herself a mom. And why does it make sense for followers of Jesus to give away their money generously or to host a home group or to volunteer on their day off or to travel halfway across the world to share the gospel with people that they've never met? Why do sacrificial decisions like this make sense? Because in the end, we know that we're going to be rewarded, rewarded by dying and being with Jesus for all eternity. That's why it makes sense. Our lives should not make sense as followers of Jesus if there is no death and resurrection. That's the reality. We should live lives that are so countercultural, that are so strange, that are, are so different than the, the, the currents around us that it just wouldn't make sense if there wasn't a death and a resurrection. Can, can I be honest with you for a moment as I close? Let me just end with this last thought. Do you want to know why I am so thankful that I'm going to die one day? One of the reasons why I'm not trying to, to avoid thinking about death, but actually want to dwell on it, want to meditate on it. Here's why I'm so thankful I'm going to die. As a follower of Jesus, I thank God that I'm going to die because I don't want to live for billions of years with the insecurities that I carry around right now. And I, I know you guys are different. I know that all of your insecurities were taken care of in high school, and so that, that's just, you can pray for me. But I, I'm serious. I don't want to live 
with the insecurities that as a 34-year-old man I still have. And I don't want to live for billions of years with a bum knee, if I'm honest. I don't want to live for billions of years with the anger that still resides within my heart at times or with my ingratitude or my sense of entitlement that I sometimes feel. And I don't want to live for billions of years with my current level of intimacy with Jesus. I want more of him. I'm thankful for what I got, thankful that I know him, thankful that he pursued me and chose me, but I want more. And so I'm thankful that one day I will die, and while people around me are crying, I'm going to see Jesus face to face. Charles Spurgeon says that on your birth, you cry while everyone else around you smiles and delights, and on your death, if you're a follower of Jesus, everyone else around you cries while you are full of joy and smiles. I love that. I'm thankful that my body will one day be resurrected and that I will dwell in his presence forever. Jesus changes the way that we see death, church. And for that reason, we have much cause to say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship, church.